Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There is a campaign right now to redefine something called Chinese restaurant syndrome, and MSG, monosodium glutamate, plays a big part in this. And I never knew that this was an actual entry in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. I'm going to just read it first, and then we'll get into the larger discussion. But Chinese restaurant syndrome is defined as a group of symptoms such as numbness of the neck, arms, and back with headache, dizziness, and palpitations that is held to affect susceptible persons eating food and especially Chinese food heavily seasoned with monosodium glutamate, MSG. So right now there's this campaign to redefine this. There's been a ton of studies that really say, you know, MSG is not particularly unhealthy for you, and it really doesn't contribute to any of this. Activists say that the definition and stigma surrounding MSG are unfounded and rooted in racism. So for more on the story, we spoke to Amelia Nirenberg. She's the food reporter for The New York Times. So the idea of Chinese restaurant syndrome started when a physician, Dr. Homan Kwok, wrote to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968 because whenever he ate Chinese food, he claimed he didn't feel so good. He wrote about all of the things he just described, numbness, headache, palpitations, etc. And then shortly thereafter, a bunch more people wrote in and this idea of Chinese food makes you sick was born. Since then, the Japanese company Ajinomoto, which is the leading producer of MSG since a Japanese scientist found it in, I think he discovered it in 1908, and then he patented it in 1909 or something like that. They have funded, there have been lots of other studies. Maybe it's not so good for you in huge doses, but there's been no conclusive scientific evidence. So this campaign, which was conceived by Ajinomoto, involves Eddie Huang and Jeannie Mai, who are two television stars and writers and personalities and chefs. And it's hashtag redefine CRS because they think that this definition is racist. They also go on to allege that for generations in Americans' minds, maybe Chinese food to a lesser degree, but really MSG was so bad for you. And I totally am guilty of that also. I just remember hearing that when you grow up and you think about it. And, oh, for sure. And, and you see all these yeah. Chinese food places that say, oh, no MSG here and all that stuff, just so you would want to go back. Right. And it goes both ways. There's people that even enjoy it or say, say, oh, well, I don't want it unless it has the MSG in it, you know, jokingly. But it just really yeah. created this whole thing in a lot of people's heads to kind of want to stay away from this. And there have been mm-hmm. a lot of studies that concluded that MSG isn't necessarily bad for you. A lot of people think maybe mm-hmm. if you're eating these foods or, or whatever, it could be sodium intake that could be the problem. And, and everybody responds differently. Right. But This is found in all sorts of stuff. Ranch dressing, it's found in ramen. McDonald's is going to put MSG in their upcoming fried chicken sandwich. So maybe people don't think of it, but it's not a hidden secret. People are using MSG constantly. I know have relatives, I have friends who say MSG gives me a headache. And maybe it does. Some people are sensitive to salt. Some people don't like cinnamon. I'm not one to quibble with folks about what they do and do not want in their food. But food companies considered it a toxin after this physician wrote in in the late, late 60s. And it's not. It's basically flavored salt. MSG is found in foods like tomato and cheese. And people had to figure out yeah. how to extract it and ferment it. 
And now they put it in stews and chicken stocks and things like that. It really gives food this fifth taste of umami. It's just a complex flavor. Like you said, it's basically like a flavored salt, but it really got this stigma around it. So the call right now to redefine CRS is being made to Merriam-Webster. And how have they responded to this? I had a wonderful email exchange with a senior editor at Merriam-Webster named Emily Brewster. And they hadn't had anyone write in about this definition until the campaign hit Twitter. And she spoke a lot in her email about how, as lexographers, people who study words, the staff at Merriam-Webster and the editors at Merriam-Webster basically record and try and understand language as it is used. But this is a direct quote. We do not create, sanction, or promote any specific words. The languages speakers do this, and we provide a record of this use. They don't delete entries unless they're like really out of date. One of the things that she told me they had removed was air tourist, which basically was someone flying on a plane, but not in first class used like 100 years ago or whatever. So no one's really saying that. That one's okay. But they do constantly define and redefine and reconsider words as society and culture and language itself changes. Even if this campaign is successful and Merriam-Webster does change the definition or take it out or, you know, whatever they do to react to this, to reflect what scientists have found out about MSG, that stigma Mm -hmm. really remains, like we were saying, you know, generations of Americans have been led to believe all this stuff. And it's really going to take a lot more than just changing the word in the dictionary. I think celebrity chefs like David Chang and, you know, Anthony Bourdain, when he was still with us, have, have made comments about these things. And it's going to take a lot more. It's going to take restaurants and chefs to start using it again and change people's minds that way. So it's really still a long road ahead for this. But I know activists were saying this is a racist thing. You're blaming it on Chinese food when it's not really the case that way. I think as a cuisine, just looking at it from a food writer's perspective, you know, a lot of the stereotype about Chinese food is that it's dirty or that it's dog. And that has been very quickly extended to Chinese people being dirty. And so you might say, oh, whatever, you know, MSG is just assault. No one knows it. But it has real implications. There's almost nothing more intimate than eating. And there's almost nothing more potentially dangerous than putting food into your body. And so if you associate a group of people with something that you associate as dirty or dangerous, it's a very small gap between kind of extending that to the whole group. So although food is just food. It's also one of the most profound emblems of culture we have. And the things that people believe and the things that people say about food have a huge implication on the way that people treat each other. Amelia Nirenberg, food reporter for The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A fun story we covered this week We take a look behind the scenes at Rotten Tomatoes, the very popular review aggregation website that many people visit before they consider even watching a movie or a new TV show. Many in Hollywood have come to hate this, but Rotten Tomatoes has become such an asset for companies that want you to watch their movies. People respect the tomato meter, and if you're certified fresh, then chances are people will want to check it out. You might have already noticed that if a movie is certified fresh with Rotten Tomatoes, You see that little red tomato on billboards or even streaming services that want people to know that people are liking this movie. As many as one-third of Americans are going to the Rotten Tomatoes website before seeing a movie to help them make their decision. For more on this story, we spoke to Simon Van Zylen Wood. He's a contributor to Wired to tell us how it all works. There's no algorithms, just curators pouring over reviews. 
a lot of people use it, myself included, and just sort of check fresh rotten, should I see this movie? And I'm not really sure that that many regular users have any idea how it works. (laughs) And that's sort of why I did this. I sort of been obsessed with them forever. Like, who are these people? How do they do this? And I do trust them. I check them on all kinds of websites, Fandango, you know, when I go to the movies, AMC, they're everywhere. So it it was almost like I was just curious for myself and then got to make an article out of it. So anyways, they let me come and hang out and I basically watched over their shoulders Here's what happens. Basically, Rotten Tomatoes is run by human beings. There's no algorithm. There's no robots. There's no computerized scores. There's about 50 people who work for the company total and about 12 people who we want to focus on. These people are called curators. What they basically do is just read movie reviews all day long, just like hundreds of hundreds of movie reviews. And their job is to decide if a movie review is positive or negative, if it's fresh or rotten. And then the way that the score gets calculated is they just add up every single movie review that exists for a movie. So with a movie like Joker, which was huge, there's like over 500 movie reviews. Right. And there's only a handful of these people. There's so many people now devoted to TV, which is a growing section and a whole other subject. There's only a handful of people even reading these movie reviews. So you've got like three or four people total reading through hundreds of reviews, deciding if they're positive or negative. And then the total percentage of positive reviews that were deemed fresh is the score. Yeah. So for Joker, since we're on it, which is like, I think they've got like a 69 or something percent rating. That means that 69% of those 500 plus reviews were deemed to be positive by a bunch of human beings in Rotten Tomatoes' offices. And what I did is I just watched them like read through those reviews and then we argued about whether they were fresh or rotten. And it's interesting too, because using this metric, the way they go through it, it really doesn't allow for nuance in a review, which you read an individual review. Someone might say the film overall was crap, but the acting was really good or so-and-so actor was like the star, but overall the film was crap. That would just get a rotten review there. So this metric doesn't allow for some of that nuance, but still people do tend to trust it a lot and I guess generally agree with it. You hit the nail on the head with the lack of nuance. What's interesting about that is that the reason why that doesn't come across is because there's this kind of veneer of numerical accuracy, right? So you see like a 76 or a 34, and that looks kind of official, like, oh, that must have come from somewhere. Like, you don't just get 34 out of nowhere. But you're right. It might mean that it was just a bunch of really, really unnuanced reviews getting collated together. And you're right. There's no middle tomato. There's no, like, overripe, underripe, (laughs) disgusting, tasty. Like, it's just fresh or rotten. So I would say almost every movie review is like this, which really begs this question of, like, if every single movie review had some nuance to it, but every single Rotten Tomatoes review of a review has no nuance to it. Are these scores completely meaningless, which is sort of what I try to figure out. They also have the audience score, which it's kind of more of a Yelp-like thing. You know, anybody can yeah. really get on there and submit a, one of these scores. There's actually a shocking number of people who just go onto the site and just rate movies after, or maybe even during movies, which always surprises me when random people on the internet just rate stuff. So, like, it's got pros and cons. So the tomato meter, yeah, that's like the crown jewel. If, like, studios are advertising their movies as fresh, they're going to stick the tomato meter up on billboards. The audience meter, the pro, ironically, is it has more nuance than the tomato meter because you can rate on, like, a one to five scale. The con is that who the heck are these people? And often with superhero and comic movies, your listeners won't be surprised to hear there are trolls who get on there and just tank a movie score if they think it's just a violation of what they think the comic book should be. So there were some trolling problems in 2018 and 2019 when the Marvel Comics Studios started coming out in movies like Captain Marvel and Black Panther that were like too diverse for certain diehards. They would just tank the audience scores, which meant that if you relied on the audience scores, and some people do, you didn't really know if that was accurate or not. So Ryan Tomatoes ends up earlier this year sort of addressing this problem in a couple ways. 
One thing they did is they don't allow people to rate movies before the movie comes out anymore. Number two, there's this new thing called the verified audience, which is kind of complicated, and I'm not sure it's going to work or not. But basically, you can prove that you saw a movie and you get filtered into this verified system. Those are the two things they did, and it's unclear if it's had a result yet. Those are the nuts and bolts of how it all works. But really, the site has seen just a ton of growth. As we've been saying, a lot of people do go and they respect the scores there. And what's kind of happened is they're kind of hated by Hollywood in a sense because a review can really tank a movie in that sense of it. But it's become such an asset to companies that want you to go watch movies. As you said, if somebody has a great score, a fresh score, they're going to put that on the billboard. And even with all their content partners and things like that, Fandango, you know, if you get a movie on Google Play, DirecTV, iTunes, they incorporate the little Rotten Tomato meter there on those websites. So it's everywhere now. That's a really good marketing tool for content platforms, whether that's streaming or renting services or the chains themselves. What's problematic there is two things. I mean, they're owned by Fandango, which is the nation's biggest ticketing app. So Fandango has a vested interest in you going to see movies, which means it's ultimately a promotional tool. And if you license out that tomato meter, you can use it any way you want. So AMC theater chains, they only show you tomato meters for movies that are 75% and up. So if you go and you see um, the Charlie's Angels reboot, uh-huh. it just there's just no tomato meter. And so you're more probably likely, I think, to see a movie with no meter next to it than to see a movie with a big splat next to it. So it's kind of manipulatable in that way. But yeah, there's this love-hate. Studios will blame Rotten Tomatoes for their bad movies. And honestly, it's probably just that the movies are bad. But then (laughs) there's no better good housekeeping mark of approval than having a fresh tomato on your TV ad. So it's just in that way, it's just become inescapable. And I think that the tiny team that runs them are super underrated in terms of how powerful they are in Hollywood. And that's why it was fun to actually embed with them. And they'd never let a reporter do that before. Do we know how well these scores really translate to the box office? There was a morning consult poll that said that one third of Americans look at a Rotten Tomatoes review before seeing a movie. And I guess 63% of those people have been deterred by a low score. But do we know sense of money or really how these translate? I don't think we have any idea. I think the poll you cited is pretty good and it's from 2018. So a third is pretty good. I wrote this article and I have serious reservations about Rotten Tomatoes and before and during and after the article, I still check it. <laughs> I, just, I can't help it. It's yeah. just everywhere. And it's on my phone. I have the Fandango app, which is how I check where the movies are playing in my neighborhood. You can't escape it. I don't think it's accurate at all. And yet I still want to know what the Rotten Tomatoes score is. So if someone is skeptical of me is still using it, like what about everybody else? Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the time that you spent there with the Rotten Tomatoes people, kind of just seeing how they operate day to day. And you were talking about how they're reading a ton of reviews for whatever movie they're going to work on at that point. What publications are they relying on for this? Because now a review is everywhere. You know, there's all these major papers have reviews. People are doing podcasts. How do they narrow down these reviews? I'll start with what they don't do. You can't just tweet a review. You can't just Facebook a review. It can't be anywhere. But basically... There are now several thousand publications or individuals on Rotten Tomatoes who are, quote, tomato meter approved critics. So, yeah, they're on YouTube. They have podcasts. And then they write for traditional publications, New York Times, L.A. Times, Washington Post, Slate, AV Club, you name it. But basically, almost everybody is accepted at this point. At this point, there are, I think, 4,500 people and or publications who are 
tomato meter approved, a lot of them are just going to be bad at reviewing movies. There's no way that there's that many good movie critics in the country. Most people, if they read critics at all, probably have a handful of favorites. I encountered a lot of horrible movie critics. If you go to a movie page on Rotten Tomatoes, you can just go and read all the reviews individually, which is a cool resource. And then you find people who are basically writing for their own website. Some of these people have very questionable skill. They've diversified their pool, which is great. There are more young people, more people of color, more women than there used to be. But there's also a lot of randos who I candidly like don't trust at all. <laughs> so, so anyways, they're going through all of them and they have a hard job. I mean, I like these people a lot. I got to spend time with them and they're kind of who you'd expect or want to be running Rotten Tomatoes. They're film nerds, they're film buffs, they know everything about movies, they're passionate about movies, and they love reading through these old reviews that they're finding or new reviews that they're finding. But I think they're kind of overworked. I've tracked down a former Rotten Tomatoes employee who left after a year, and she was telling me that Rotten Tomatoes curators were expected to hit 200, 300, sometimes up to 400 reviews a week curated. That basically means you're just powering through dozens of reviews an hour with little time to think about it. And so often critics think that their movies have been mislabeled, misreviewed, which wouldn't be surprising at all. That It's sort of pedal to the metal. What's the minimum number of reviews that are needed to get a tomato meter reading on a single movie? If you have five reviews or more, I think you're in the tomato meter. So it's also funny because some indie filmmakers, like really, really small budget filmmakers, will be at two or three reviews. Uh-huh. They don't even care if their reviews are positive or negative. They would rather have five horrible reviews than none because just getting on the site means so much for publicity. Wow. I mean, it's just an interesting look uh, to see how this uh, site operates. And as you mentioned, really don't have a big staff and uh, when you narrow it down to the people that are actually curating these reviews, it's even less than you might think. And the the site has just kind of become so powerful in that sense where people do trust it and companies want this uh, stamp of approval. And it's just uh, it's crazy how this thing has all worked out. I would say one thing. I was talking to a film critic at New York Magazine, and she had a really good frame for understanding Rotten Tomatoes. And it's that the Rotten Tomatoes score isn't so much a mark of the movie's quality. It's a mark of consensus. But what I mean by that is that basically a kind of slightly positive review is treated exactly the same as a rave review. So a movie that a lot of critics love this year, like Parasite, is at a 99. But a movie last year that people liked a fair amount, but probably wasn't you know, the greatest movie of all time, pick any of the Marvel movies, for example, are often 95, 96, 97. Obviously, or at least in my opinion, those movies are totally different caliber. But the consensus that you're seeing is that that's a consensus that that was an, an enjoyable movie, according to critics. It doesn't mean either movie was a 99 out of 100. It just means 99 out of 100 reviews said it was better than 50%. And that's exactly why that number probably works. You might love it or you might kind of like it, but you're probably going to like it. And boom, then it becomes a good movie for you to go watch. There's a lot of great inflation right now for various reasons that have or have not to do with Rotten Tomatoes. And if the whole point, because they're owned by Fandango, is to use it as a marketing tool, if you want to be suspicious about the fact that the average tomato meter scores go up and up and up every year, which they do, it is true that they do. It's not because it's a conspiracy. It's just because, I don't know, maybe critics are getting softer or maybe there's so many reviewers out there now that a lot of them are fanboys. But there's just a lot more positive reviews and it gets harder to wade through and figure out what's really a good review. Simon Van Zylen Wood, contributor at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.